Amen. All right, check it out. One day there's this uh, minister, and he died. I guess that happens once in a while. Hopefully not until at least I get this done. But anyway, so there's this minister, Tom, and he died. And, and he's waiting in line at the pearly gates. And guess who's there? St. Peter. It's always him. I don't know why, but maybe we'll ask him when we get there. And, and ahead of him, the minister, was this other guy. And he's dressed in these sunglasses. He's got this loud shirt on. He's got a leather jacket and jeans and stuff. And, and so St. Peter, he addresses this guy with the loud shirt, jeans. And he says, hey, who are you? So that I may know whether or not to admit you into the kingdom of heaven. And the guy replies, he says, I'm Joe, Joe Cohen, taxi driver from New York City. How do you like that? You like that one, Tom? I don't know what that was. It was supposed to be East Coast. But anyway, so so St. Peter, he consults his list and he smiles joyfully and he says to the taxi driver, he goes, well, hey, man. He says, take this silken robe and this, this golden staff and enter into the kingdom of heaven. So the taxi driver, he goes into heaven with his robe and his staff there. And and so now it's the minister's turn, right? And so he stands up real tall and he booms out. He says, I am Peter Finster, pastor of St. Michael's Church for the last 43 years. And so St. Peter, he consults his list and he kind of casually says to the minister, he says, all right, take this cotton robe and this wooden staff and enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, the minister, he objects and he says, listen, Peter, wait a second here. That man was a taxi driver. He gets this silken robe and this golden staff. I'm a preacher, and I get this cotton robe and a wooden one. How can this be? And St. Peter replied, well, you see, Pastor, up here, we work by results. While you preach, people slept. While he drove, people prayed. (laughs) You have no idea how hard it was to spit that joke out, okay? Yuck it up, people. It's real funny. Real funny, but seriously. Okay. How many guys can identify there, if we're going to be honest, like the kids today, did you, the sleeping part there, preaching, okay, yeah, whatever. I mean, anyway, but what's really not funny, at least I don't think about that joke, uh, is it reminds me how people today, unfortunately, think that we can somehow earn our way to heaven when the Bible says, are you kidding me? And there's only one way through heaven, and that's Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And folks, once again, you can scoff all you want, but one minute into eternity, you're going to discover just like that, it was all true, every last bit of it, but now... Is too late. Horribly late. Therefore, to lovingly warn those who may indeed be headed in the wrong direction, we're going to continue in our study we started last week called One Minute Into Eternity. One minute into eternity, you'll find out. And folks, what we're doing is taking a look at the four classical objections that the skeptics seem to come up with, at least that I hear about, when it comes to eternity or eternal matters, okay? And last time if we were here, we saw the first objection they come up with is the question, well, hey, listen, is there even life after death in the first place? And what we saw, folks, was that the Bible clearly teaches there is life after death. In fact, it's pretty simple. Uh, It's on the line there, folks. You're either going straight into heaven or you're going straight into hell. It's very cut and dry, okay? And folks, here's the point. You can scoff all you want. Okay, but listen, folks. Once you're there, you're not coming back, the Bible says. You're not going to get a second chance. Everlasting means just that, that. It's everlasting. But now it's too late, okay? But that's when all the second objection that skeptics come up with is this. All right, fine. Okay, if there really is life after death, then the next question I have is this. Well, all right, then what happens when you die, Right? What happens then when you die, okay? And people, again, as we saw last week, this is a great question. You and I, the Christians, shouldn't be running from this. Uh, This is, yeah, you should. Thank you for asking. I, I can't wait to tell you. Okay, as a Christian, this is a logical, straightforward question. Stop and think about it. If all this Jesus stuff is true, and it 
is, okay, uh, if it's true, then there, and there really is a heaven, and there really is a hell, and there really is therefore life after death, then can we know? Then can we know exactly what happens the moment that we die, right? And notice it's not when we die, it's if we die, it's when we die, right? We're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, okay? And the Bible, of course, fills in the blank. God, of course, especially on eternity, he doesn't leave us hanging high and dry, okay? The Bible is not just specific about there being life after death. Listen, it's extremely specific about what life is going to be like after death. We're going to continue to exist in one of two places forever and ever, okay? But before we get to uh, uh, look at what uh, the Bible says for the Christian, let's first dispel some of the false teachings, okay, the false teachings concerning the afterlife, okay? And the first one I want to dispel this morning is the false teaching of evolution, the false teaching of evolution concerning the afterlife, okay? But again, it's not just a theory, it's a lie. Don't take my word for it. Once again, listen to God's, okay? And he says, listen, it's not just a lie, but it's the most lamest excuse you could ever come up with, and you still have no excuse for not knowing there was a God, okay? Again, Romans chapter 1 is our opening text. Romans chapter 1. Let's take a look there. Romans, if you find the book of Romans, what do you do? chapter 1, right? We're going to take a look at that classic passage we've seen several times before in other contexts. Verses 18 through 22, okay? Uh, and is, is there really no evidence for the existence of God? Are people really going to stand before God and say, hey, this isn't right, it's not fair, I didn't have enough evidence, blah, blah, blah. No. It's not what God says. You're being dishonest. In fact, the Bible says you're a fool evidence. Let's take a look at what's going on there. Uh, Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says this, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who what? They're scientific. They're dealing with the facts. They're honest with them. No. He said they suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is what? It's plain to them because God's made it plain to them. Well, how? Well, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, creation, so that men are what? Without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, hey, listen to us. You guys don't know science. We do. We're the intellectual ones. We're the smart ones. You're the dum-dums. What's God say about those people? Excuse me, you became fools. You deliberately turned away from the evidence and you became a fool. Okay, is what's going on here. Okay, the Bible clearly says, folks, that nobody, and I mean nobody, is going to stand before God and charge him if you will point a finger at God and say, hey, listen, God, you can't send me to hell. I mean, come on, this isn't fair. I, I just didn't have enough proof that, that you existed. What? That's not what the Bible says. No one, that means no one is going to have an excuse before God because he has given us so much evidence of his existence through his creation, the design and the complexity of all of life, okay? In other words, God's saying, listen, you have no excuse because you could look at a flea to a tree to a bee to you and me and see design and imply the logical conclusion that just like with a watch, it didn't pop out by chance. It was designed, right? That's what he's saying. you got no excuse, okay? And so therefore, the logical conclusion is, wow, look at all that design. That came from a designer, capital D. That can't happen by chance. So God is real. So therefore, I better get right with God. I better do what he says before it's too late. That's why he says you got no excuse. 
And unfortunately, we still scoff at God. But listen, guys, I want to encourage you this morning. If you don't want to listen to God's obvious evidence in creation of design, which, again, I don't recommend, then maybe you should listen to modern-day scientists, at least the ones who can no longer intellectually suppress the truth. And they're admitting, folks, there is no such thing as a simple so-called evolutionary cell. That's a lie. What they're admitting, folks, to you and I is that everything from the telescope down to the microscope is a well-designed, complex machine factory. Let's take a look at just some animation that the scientists, secular, put together about what goes on in just a cell. You tell me if it's not the handiwork of God. Let's take a look. With computer animation, we can enter the cell to view this remarkable system at work. After entering the heart of the cell, we see the tightly wound strands of DNA, storehouses for the instructions necessary to build every protein in an organism. In a process known as transcription, a molecular machine first unwinds a section of the DNA helix to expose the genetic instructions needed to assemble a specific protein molecule. Another machine then copies these instructions to form a molecule known as messenger RNA. When transcription is complete, the slender RNA strand carries the genetic information through the nuclear pore complex, the gatekeeper for traffic in and out of the cell nucleus. The messenger RNA strand is directed to a two-part molecular factory called a ribosome. After attaching itself securely, the process of translation begins. Inside the ribosome, a molecular assembly line builds a specifically sequenced chain of amino acids. These amino acids are transported from other parts of the cell and then linked into chains often hundreds of units long. Their sequential arrangement determines the type of protein manufactured. When the chain is finished, it is moved from the ribosome to a barrel-shaped machine that helps fold it into the precise shape critical to its function. After the chain is folded into a protein, it is then released and shepherded by another molecular machine to the exact location where it is needed. This is absolutely mind-boggling to perceive at this scale of size such a uh, finely tuned um, apparatus, a device that's, uh, that bears the marks of intelligent design and manufacture. Wow. 
So what's that scientist saying? Can, can I translate that for you? It's absolutely mind-boggling for you to say, you're, I'm sorry, with all due respect, you're acting like some sort of a fool. To say that the so-called simple cell, there is no simple cell, that's ludicrous. Folks, that's just one little cell of one little thing of one that's going on whether we see it or not. Our bodies are made up of an estimated 50 trillion of them. And you're going to say that happened by chance? The supposed simplest of all cells is supposed to be the paramecium, and that thing is more complex than the space shuttle. That's the tip of the iceberg. Uh, Listen, guys, our DNA molecule is the most complex molecule in the universe. Its code is so unbelievably complex, if you typed the whole thing out, it would create enough books to fill the Grand Canyon 40 times. And that's still the tip of the iceberg. And yet, evolution, the lie of evolution, would have you and I believe there is no God, and therefore they make a secondary mistake, and they say there is no afterlife. That when you and I die, hey, we just go back to the ground to be worm bait, right? Okay, that's what they say, okay? And and that's not what the Bible says. It says that we were created, as you can see, at the handiwork of God. He's given us tons of existence. The designer, capital D, God made us. And that, listen, when, not if you die, just like God, he's given us a spirit nature which is eternal. And every single one of us are going to continue to exist forever in one of two places. And this is what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 through 53. He says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We're not all going to sleep. Speaking of death, we'll get to that in a second. But we will all be changed in the flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we're all going to be changed. Okay, can I translate? You're not going back to the ground to be worm bait. Imperishable. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with what? Immortality, okay? People, the Bible is clear that when we die, we are not going back to the ground and just sitting there to rot, okay, for bugs, for food, and for fodder, okay? The Bible says in the twinkling of an eye, just like that, we are created in God's image. We're going to put on immortality. We're going to continue to exist in one of two places. And you can sit here and you can scoff all you want and listen to the foolishness that's been unfortunately drilled into your head by the school system and the media. But listen, man, just like that, One moment into eternity, you're going to discover how foolish it really was, but then it's going to be too late. It's a lie. The second false teaching concerning the afterlife, not just the lie of evolution, uh, but is this another theory, it's another lie, it's called little gods. Okay, and this is actually what we saw before Mormonism teaches, and also New Age teaches, okay? Believe it or not. And that what these people would actually have you and I believe, that at the moment we die, we get to become these little gods, And listen, our wives get to become little goddesses who then forever get to be pregnant and populate planets throughout the universe. And for some reason, my wife doesn't want to do that. Uh, Two kids is enough, but uh, what? Okay, but seriously, folks, anyone could uh, see that this is actually a logical absurdity. I mean, just without even looking at any verse, we'll get to that in a second. But this is a logical absurdity. Listen, how can a being that had a beginning, anybody celebrate a birthday ever? Those of you who didn't raise your hand, I'm really concerned about you <laughs> right now. All right. How can you and I who had a beginning, and we even celebrate that beginning, call it our birthday, become God who by definition never had a beginning? That's a logical absurdity. How can a being that was created ever become a being who by definition was never created, i.e. self-existing God? It's ludicrous. And of course, 
It's unbiblical. The Bible is very clear, folks. There's only one God. There's only ever going to be one God. And the Bible is very replete about that. Just in the book of Isaiah, just a few references. Isaiah 43.10 says, You are my witnesses, declare the Lord. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. Hello. Okay, Isaiah 44, verse 6 and 8. This is what the Lord says. I am the first. I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Is there any God besides me? No, Bill. Thanks for asking, though. There is no other rock. I know not one. Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. Okay? People, the Bible is emphatic. Okay? When you die, you are not going to become a God or suddenly realize you were God. Okay, you're going to have a realization, all right. (laughs) You're going to realize you've been horribly lied to. And that there is, in fact, like the Bible's been saying the whole time, there is only one God to whom you're now standing before going to have to give an account. And you're going to be cast into hell. Don't do that. It's a lie. The third false teaching concerning the afterlife, this is real popular today, unfortunately, even in the church, is the theory of reincarnation. The false teaching of reincarnation. And and again, this is one of the most popular false teachings out there concerning the afterlife. And, And what reincarnation, if you don't know, what they would have you and I believe is that when we die, okay, we get recycled, if you will. We get recycled into many different beings over many different lifetimes, okay, and supposedly based on what we did in one life, uh, it's going to reflect in our existence in another life. Okay, and for instance, they'll say, say, well, hey, if I was mean and rotten in one life, then, hey, I'm going to get it in the next one. Then my next life, they would say, I'm going to come back as a person who gets treated mean and rotten by other people. Okay, and that's what they would call, if you will, the law of karma. Okay, and then to make matters worse, uh, they even go so far as to say, well, hey, Christian, I mean, we're unified on this one. Don't you know the Bible teaches reincarnation? No, it doesn't. But here's a verse that they misquote and misapply. Okay, John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking about being born again. Listen to this. Uh, In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's what? Born again. again. Well, there you have it, Holly. You, you, You must be born again. Reincarnation must be true. No. First of all, notice it didn't say, and this is obvious logic, uh, it didn't say born again and again and again and again and again, like reincarnation believes, right? It didn't say that, okay? Second of all, the context clearly reveals he's talking about a spiritual birth, not an actual physical birth. In fact, that's really clear because what was Nicodemus' question? He said, hey, listen, Jesus, I can't go back into my mother's womb. I can't have a second physical birth, right? And that's why Jesus said, yeah, you're right. That's not what I'm talking about. You've got to be born of this spirit. I'm talking about a spiritual rebirth, not a physical one, as reincarnation would say. Okay? In fact, folks, the Bible is very clear. The Bible does not teach at all the law of karma. The Bible teaches the law of Jehovah, which says you only live one time. That's it. And after that, you're going to stand before God. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 clearly spells this out for us, folks. The Bible does not teach reincarnation. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die, how many times, Christian? One time. And after that, no recycling. Here comes your judgment. That's what the Bible says, folks. You need to pay attention to it. The Bible says, folks, again, you can scoff all you want, but when you die, you're not coming back as a worm, a flea, a tree, a bee, another you and me. You're going to stand before Almighty God in His presence for all eternity in one of two places after you get judged. You're going to stand before Him. 
And you're going to be judged for every single thing you did on this earth unless you trust in the work of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness on the cross that will wipe everything away and you'll be safe. That's what the Bible says. So the point is this. Listen, you better get it right with God now the first time, the only time you're on this planet. Don't listen to the live reincarnation. The fourth false teaching that's out there is the theory of what's called soul sleep. Okay? And this is where people would have you and I believe that when we die, that we're going to take, a, if you will, a big cosmic nap in the sky. And uh, we'll be snoozing until we get uh, resurrected. And again, just like with reincarnation, it's based on another misunderstanding in the scripture that mentions the phrase fallen asleep. It's not a literal sleep, but let's take a look at one example. This is the classic passage dealing with the rapture. And this is what Paul says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15. He says, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, okay, who are left at the coming of the Lord, the rapture, will certainly not precede those who have what? Fallen asleep. Oh, there you have it. I tell you what, when we die, we're going to turn into the ultimate couch potato. We're going to fall asleep. And then I'm... Praise God for being here because at least you guys laugh at that stuff. This is awesome. You should be in here more often. This is great. I love it. I love it. Now, folks, I must admit that, uh, again, there's been times I thought that you guys here have fallen into a soul sleep while I'm preaching. We won't go there. I'm still struggling over the taxi driver joke. Uh, but seriously, folks, the term <laughs> falling asleep or asleep in the scripture is not a literal sleep. You do not turn into a cosmic couch potato when you die. Falling asleep is a common phrase used in the Bible to describe death. Why? Because when you look at the person, it's as if they fell asleep. That's it. But even so, folks, the Bible is clear that when we die as a Christian, we will not sleep literally. Rather, we go straight to be with Jesus, who's not taking a nap, by the way. Let's take a look at just a couple passages. We saw this last week, if you were here, uh, clears the bell, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home taking a nap. No, be at home with the Lord, Jesus, right? Absent from the body, bang, you're right there with him. Uh, Paul says this, Philippians 1, 23. Hey, listen, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ. Hey, man, that's far better. You know what I'm saying? It, it, and that's what he wants, okay? And, and so, in other words, Jesus isn't sleeping at the right hand of the Father, so neither are we. And if you want further proof, look no further than Matthew 17, the transfiguration passage. We'll see another parallel passage in a little bit where you see uh, 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 Jesus being transformed. There's Moses and Elijah were alive speaking to Jesus, not taking a nap. And last week, if you were here, Luke 16, with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, were not only alive, but clearly speaking and remembering and were either in agony or in comfort, depending on the place they were in. No sleeping. And so folks, the Bible is clear. You can scoff all you want, but Jesus is not taking a cosmic nap and neither will we. Absent from the body, woo, hello Jesus. If you're a Christian. The point is, if you're not, you're going to be present all right. You're going to be present, whoa, in a place called hell. Okay, the fifth, uh, speaking of hell, the fifth final false teaching that I'm going to deal with on this first half uh, is concerning the theory of purgatory. The theory of purgatory. And what this uh, theory, this lie, would have you and I believe is that when we die, we don't go to be with Jesus, even though we clearly saw we do. No, 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 no. We go to some sort of holding pen where we purge our sins, ourselves, through our own suffering, you know, purge our sins so we do the work so hopefully maybe someday maybe possibly hopefully we can make it to heaven and you might be thinking well come on people don't really believe that today I mean I know in the past that was an old Catholic teaching but they don't believe that today do they 
Folks, you might want to be paying attention to what's coming out of the mouth of the new pope. Because, man, there's all kinds of whacked out stuff. We saw last week that he told atheists that uh, you don't even have to believe in God to go to heaven. But listen, I kid you not, the new pope not only still believes in purgatory, but he even recently stated that for those who listen and tune into his live broadcast on Twitter, they can shave off time in purgatory. This one I had to show the video clip on. Watch this. Looking to absolve your sins? Well, the solution is right at your fingertips. The Vatican has announced Pope Francis will be offering forgiveness in 140 characters or less. Per tradition, Francis will offer plenary indulgences, that is, reductions on purgatory time, to participants at World Youth Day later this month. About two million pilgrims are expected to head to Rio de Janeiro for the new pontiff's first trip abroad, hoping to shave off some time in limbo. But they're not the only ones. Any of his seven million Twitter followers legitimately prevented from attending will have the same opportunities. Francis has extended the rites and pious exercises of the event to those following it on TV, radio, and through social media. But there's a catch. A Vatican source tells The Guardian you must follow the events live online. Periodically scrolling through the Holy See's Twitter feed just won't cut it. Oh, man, that ain't right. I had a kid cheat, man. I had a going, Bill. I could have shaved up. You know, anybody can multitask, right? I'll scroll over here and get some time off and really get some work done. And... Can you believe that? This is going on right now, folks, okay? Well, this isn't some ancient thing that no, no, it's being promoted today. And it's a lie. And what makes this false teaching even worse is people assume that it's taught in the Bible and it's not. There's not one verse anywhere in the scripture that validates this. It's a lie. There's nowhere in the scripture. And second, if you think about this, this is blasphemy, man. This is a slap in the face to the atonement of Jesus Christ, which says that it's Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross alone that is sufficient payment for all our sins. But according to this false teaching, purgatory, when Jesus uh, said it was finished on the cross, apparently it really wasn't finished. Apparently, you and I have to finish the job by our own suffering, even suffering through a Twitter feed of the new pope. That's blasphemy and ludicrous. Folks, the good news is the Bible says when Jesus Christ died on the cross, you better get excited about this one. He died for all of our sins, every last stinking one of them, past, present, and future. Amen? And this is just one verse that is clear about that, folks. It is a done, complete deal through Jesus. Hebrews 10, verse 14 says, For by one offering he, Jesus, has perfected for how long? All time those who are sanctified, set apart, who have come to him through the cross. Okay? And this is why the Bible is clear, folks. There are no sins that you and I could ever purge in order to get to heaven. Jesus Christ bore them on the cross, and it's the acceptance of his work is how we get to heaven, period. And you can scoff all you want, but if you really think that you have to add something to what Jesus did, the Bible says you've got a false gospel, a false salvation. And I don't care what you say, you're not headed to heaven, you're headed to hell. Don't fall for the lie. Okay, but that's the bad false teachings. I want to close uh, looking at the good, true teachings in the afterlife for the Christian anyway. Lord Willem will deal next what happens to the non-Christian for eternity called hell. Uh, but let's take a look at what the Bible says you and I, the Christian, can expect the moment when we die. Okay, and the first way that the Bible likens death for the Christian is simply a pleasant transition. This is awesome, guys. Be encouraged. A pleasant transition. You don't have to be scared about it. It's going to be great. Let's take a look at the parallel passage of the transfiguration, Matthew 17. This is Luke 9. And this is what it says there, verse 28 through 31. About eight days after Jesus said this, okay, he took Peter, John, and James with him uh, and went up onto a mountain to pray. 
And he was praying, as he was, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. And two men, Moses and Elijah, notice they're not sleeping, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now, it may not seem like much there, but when you start to peel this out, the Greek word that's used there for departure is where we get the Hebrew term exodus from. Exodus, if you're familiar with that, means a way out or the way out, okay, is what Exodus means. And that's what this Greek word departure here means. And so the picture that's painted for us as the Christian, listen, is that just as Moses led the Israelites out of bondage of Egypt into the promised land, so our Lord Jesus Christ has departed first through death's door and he leads us the way out to the eternal promised land, the place called heaven. Right? You just need to follow him. He's going to take you there. This is the good news. And so we don't have to be anxious, Christian, about our departure. We don't have to be distraught. Jesus Christ has gone on before us, and the pathway is secure. Right? It's awesome news. The second way the Bible likens death for the Christian is as a sailing ship. Anybody ever get good and sick on the ocean? Well, get that out of your head because it'll ruin the analogy. Uh, This is supposed to be a good one. This is, again, what Paul says in Philippians, as we saw in the text there, uh, chapter 1, verse 23, okay? It's a really cool term going on here. He says, but man, I'm hard-pressed. I'm hard-pressed from both directions. He says, "Uh, I I got this desire to part to be with Christ uh, because that is very much better. And again, if you notice there on the screen, you can see the the phrase, the word there, depart. Now, what's really neat about this, guys, is it's a different word than the depart that we saw before. The Greek for this word, listen, is actually a shipping term. And the word that Paul's using here is literally to pull up anchors. To pull up anchor. It's a shipping term, okay? Therefore, the picture that's painted for us as a Christian is that upon death, when our loved ones are still saying their goodbyes, when we've loosed our anchors to this earth and we've sailed away into the other horizon, listen, simultaneously, on the other horizon, a whole host of heavenly beings will be welcoming us home to our eternal home. Okay? And that's why, folks, death for the Christian, it's not the final voyage. It's the final welcome home. You made it on the ship, the boat of Jesus Christ. You're going to get there. The third way that the Bible likens death for the Christian is as a restful sleep. Again, not a soul sleep, but when you understand it, it's just like you close your eyes to sleep, and there he is. Isn't that awesome? Listen, this is just one passage talking about that. Just a restful sleep for the Christian. Luke chapter 8, verse 52. Now they were all weeping and lamenting for her. But, but he, Jesus, said, hey, listen, stop weeping because she has not died, but she is asleep. Okay, and again, as we saw before, this is not talking of soul sleep. It's just the way that the Bible uh, likens death for the Christian. It's as if you did go to sleep, but instantly you wake up, absent from the body, is to be present with Jesus. And again, when you understand this, it brings home an amazing, awesome truth. Okay, let's see if we can put it together. How many guys have been really, really, really tired before? Okay, and maybe it's like one of the ultimate tired times. I mean, maybe it was like the night before you had this horrible right night's sleep. You hardly got any sleep at all. Then you had this extremely long, exhausting day. You just couldn't wait to get home. I'm not even going to eat. I'm just going to go plop in the bed, right? This is the picture that's painted for us here. That when the Christian dies, we simply just leave this tired old body just plopping on the bed. Only to awaken 
in the wonderful arms of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, true story, I, want to, I love this story. True story, Peter Marshall, I don't know if you've heard of him. He shares this true story of a mother who explained this to her son. Listen to what, what he said. He says, in a home of which I know a little boy, the only son was ill with an incurable disease. And month after month, the mother had tenderly nursed him and read to him and played with him and hoping to keep him from the dreadful finality of the doctor's diagnosis that the little boy was surely to die. And one day his mother was reading him a story and after she closed the book, her little son sat silent for an instant, deeply stirred. And then he asked the question weighing on his childish heart. And he says, Mama, what's it like to die? Mama, does it hurt? Can you imagine your child saying that to you? And so quick tears sprang to her eyes and she fled to the kitchen, supposedly tending to something on the stove. And she knew it was a question of deep significance and she knew it had to be answered satisfactorily. So she breathed a hurried prayer to the Lord that he would keep her from breaking down and that she would be able to tell them the answer. And the Lord did tell her. Immediately she knew how to explain it to him. And she said to her son, she said, Kenneth, do you remember when you were a tiny boy how you used to play so hard all day that when night came you were too tired even to undress and you'd just tumble into your mother's bed and fall asleep? She said, now that was not your bed and that was not where you belong. You would only stay there a little while and much to your surprise you would wake up, find yourself in your own bed in your own room. And you were there because someone had loved you and taken care of you. Your father had come with his big strong arms and carried you away. And she said, Kenneth, darling, death is just like that for the Christian. We just wake up some morning to find ourselves in the other room. Our room where we belong because the Lord Jesus loved us and died for us. True story. The boy's face, looking up in hers, told her that the point had gone home and there would be no more fear and he never questioned again. And several weeks later, he fell asleep just as she said and he was carried into his own room by his heavenly father. Folks, this is what this text is telling you and I as the Christian. Just like that story reveals, the Bible declares that at the transition from this world to the next in the twinkling of an eye, we just leave this tired old body like we have fine leg. Plop on the bed. I'm just so exhausted with all this balonium. I'm in heaven with Jesus. That's it. Isn't that awesome? The fourth way the Bible likes in death is as a collapsing tent. Paul uses this analogy uh, in this passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. Let's take a look at what he's talking about. He says this, For we know that if our earthly tent, he's talking about our bodies in the context, uh, which is our house is torn down, in other words, falls apart, decays, or dies, okay? We have a building from who? God, a house not made with hands. This baby is eternal in the heavens, okay? Now, I don't want to cause the church split or anything, but if you guys will notice our tents or our bodies uh, today here are at various stages of being tattered, torn, and decay. He's looking straight ahead. Okay, some worse than others, but we won't go there, okay? And, and so what's going on here, folks, is that the text is talking about our earthly tents, our bodies. And so the picture that's painted for us here, Christian, listen, one day, our body, our tents, we're just simply going to pull up stakes. Because this whole thing is temporary, you know. And we're going to head off not to another dusty old campground on earth with more pine sap on the hand and the... The only thing I like about it is the, the dust chocolate beer the kids get after being out in the dirt for a couple of days. That's pretty cool. Uh, but the sticky marshmallows, and if I eat another burnt hot dog, I'm going to puke. Okay, But we're not doing that anymore. Listen, the stakes come up, 
We're not going to another dusty old campground on earth. We're going to a mansion, a building prepared by God himself with all the amenities. Okay? And so here's the point. Can you imagine all the amenities that awaits us in our new heavenly home? Camping is cool, but listen. Where we're headed for heaven is just mind-blowing, guys. It's all temporary. The fifth and final way, speaking of home, the Bible likens death for the Christian is just that. It's a permanent one. Builds on what Paul's talking about here. And this, of course, is from Jesus, John chapter 14. Let's take a look there. Uh, He says this, verse 2 and 3, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Anybody glad for the word there, many? (laughs) Okay, there's many dwelling places. He said, if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and receive you to myself, Jesus says, that where I am, there you may be also. Okay? And this is really cool when you stop to think about a home being permanent. Okay? Because here on earth on this temporary camping trip, how many guys have ever been worried about something in your home, your apartment, wherever you live? There always seems to be something to concern us about them things. Right? I mean, whether it's bugs to kill, especially here in Vegas. Man, you've seen those? Those things, man, you could like ride them to work or something. Then things are getting big. Wow. But bugs to kill, uh, bills to pay, the thing burning down, somebody robbing the joint. There's always something. We got to fix this. We got to fix that. You got to up the... There's always something to concern us about our homes on earth, right? But that's not what's going to happen for the Christian in heaven. The picture that's painted for us here is there's going to come a day we're never, ever, ever going to have to be worried with anything that has to do with our homes ever again. It's all provided for. It's all taken care of. It's all perfect. It's always right all the time. Ever, forever, and ever. Isn't that awesome? And contrary, folks, that's what society says. Heaven is real. This permanent home. And you don't want to miss the thing, okay? And just to let you know, I, I want to share with you a, a, an actual testimony of a uh, Christian pastor who died and was miraculously revived. And here's what he saw. Take it for what it is. Here's what he saw, a little teaser of the permanent home thing. Here's what he said. He says, when I died, he said, I didn't flow through this long, dark tunnel. I had no sense of fading away or coming back. I never felt my body being transported into the light. He said, I had no voices calling to me or anything else. He said, in my next moment of awareness, I was standing in heaven. It's almost like 2 Corinthians 5.8, absent from the body, present with the Lord. He said, joy pulsated through me as I looked around. And at that moment, I became aware of a large crowd of people. They stood in front of a brilliant, ornate gate. And as they surged towards me, I knew instantly uh, that all of them were Christians that had died during my lifetime. And they rushed towards me and every person was smiling and shouting and praising God. And and although no one said so intuitively, I knew they were my celestial welcoming committee. It's as if they had all gathered just outside heaven's gate waiting for me. And I, I, I still didn't know why, but the joyousness of the place, listen, wiped away any questions. Everything felt blissful. It was perfect. Everything I experienced was a first-class buffet for the senses. I had never felt such powerful embraces or feasted my eyes on such beauty. Listen, never even in my happiest moments on earth had I ever felt so alive. He said, I stood speechless there in the crowd of loved ones still trying to take in everything and over and over again, I heard how overjoyed they were to see me and how excited they were to have me among them. And I felt, I felt loved. I felt loved more than ever before in my life. 
And when they gazed at me, I knew what the Bible means by perfect love. It emanated from every person who surrounded me. All were full of life, expressed this radiant joy. Listen, heaven was many things, but without a doubt, it was the greatest family reunion of all. And he closes with this. He said, I was home. I was home. I was where I belonged. And I wanted to be there more than anywhere I'd ever been on earth. Time had slipped away. I was simply present in heaven. I I had no needs. I felt perfect. All worries, all anxieties, all concerns had simply vanished. Wow. There's nothing to be joyful about, Pastor Billy. Are you kidding me? And again, folks, I'll make this disclaimer. I'm not saying build your theology of the afterlife on a near-death experience, even the so-called Christian one. But come on, if you know the scripture, it sure seems that the death for the Christian is radically different. You know what I'm saying? Our heavenly home is going to be permanent, completely taken care of, absolutely awesome forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Wow. I like this. One guy said this. He says, if it only took God six days to create the whole universe in all of life. Can you imagine what kind of place Jesus is preparing for us that he's been working on for the last 2,000 years? This place is going to be a garbage camp (laughs) compared to what's going on up there. Anybody looking forward to that? That's the hope of Jesus Christ. And folks, this is the point. Listen, here's the good news. Yeah, that's real. Yeah, that's at your fingertips if you would just receive it as a gift. There is a heaven. Praise God. This is the tip of the tip of the iceberg how awesome it's going to be. But guess what? There also is a hell. And so I ask you, are you ready for the journey? If you're here today and if you were to die today and you could, are you sure? You can get it wrong on your taxes. You can get it wrong on all kinds of things and relationships, jobs, employment, even your checkbook. But don't get eternity wrong. Are you sure if you were to die today that you'd go to heaven and not hell? Scoff all you want, but once you die, it's too late. One minute into eternity, folks, you're going to find out it was true, but you can't reverse it. If you still have breath and if you have an inkling of doubt where you're going, make sure today, like this guy found out, folks, we'll close in prayer after this. When I came to, Dr. Allen said my hair was literally standing on the end and my eyes had already started dilating. And uh, I was absolutely, uh, just absolutely scared to death. I was horrified. My life was what you might call normal. I parted lots. Not all that bad, but I had joined the church at a small, young age because my parents had said, let's go down to the front and join the church. I really didn't realize what it was to belong to the church or accept Christ until that day. And I had early in one morning at work, I had gone to the, walked to the local clinic in my hometown and, tell, and telling them I thought I was having a heart attack. I didn't tell anyone I was going and they sent me on up to the clinic where Dr. Rollins was and kept me about three or four days and then gave me a stress test. On that stress test, I told the girl Pam that was running the stress test that uh, I was dying let me off and that's the last I remember of that and uh, when I came to uh, Dr. Rollins was giving me CPR 
and he asked me what's the matter because I was looking so scared and so forth. And uh, I told him I'd been to hell, I needed help. And he said, well, keep your health to yourself. I'm a doctor, I'm trying to save your life. You need a minister for that. As he was giving me CPR, he was trying to install a pacemaker with the other hand and do it with one. I would fade out. And then he'd start again and bring me back. I watched what was going on, like some people say I was floating in air or up on the ceiling. I was up above it and could look down and see things. And I kept asking, please help me, please help me. I don't want to go back to hell. And Pam said, well, he needs help. Do something. And at that time, he said, say this short prayer after me. I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If he'll save my soul and keep me alive, I'll be on hook for you forever. And if I die, please keep me out of hell. And after that, the other experiences was real pleasant. My next experience was walking down a lane that had colors on both sides, just brilliant colors. I have dabbled in art and I, or Rembrandt, either one could not reproduce those colors. They were so bright. This light surrounded me and I believe to this day that was the Holy Spirit that surrounded me and took care of me. And I've never felt so good and so safe in all my life. After all this was over, I realized what had really happened. It was a double conversion. Not only had this make-believe prayer converted this atheist on the floor, it had also converted this atheist doctor that it was working on him. That's the only reason I can appear to you here now, to tell you that there is a life after death, and it ain't all good. If you want to have life hereafter, you better accept Jesus. Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and Get a Life Ministries, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, before you go, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? You see, here's the problem. The Bible says that nobody automatically gets to go to heaven, and that's because God is holy and we are not. The Bible says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness, or the wrong things that we have done, have separated us from God. And the wages of our sin, or unholiness, uh, means that we deserve to die and receive God's judgment to go to hell and not heaven. In other words, we're disqualified for heaven. And that's because God being holy and us being not, the two cannot mix. So what are we going to do? Well, that's bad enough. The other problem is we don't even want to admit this dilemma even though God already knows it all. And so out of love, God gave us something called the Ten Commandments to show us that we're really disqualified for heaven. We're not holy, we're not perfect like him. Uh, let's take a, a look at just a few of those uh, here today. Uh, the Bible says, the Ten Commandments says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. How many of you have ever told a lie before? Well, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you just did. Okay, let's be honest, folks. Let's not tell another lie. We've all lied. Well, believe it or not, that disqualifies you for heaven. That's how holy God is. He is the truth. He does not lie. And so that makes us a liar. Another of the Ten Commandments says you shall not steal. Okay? How many have ever taken anything without permission? Well, all of our hands should have went up at that one. Uh, we've already said we're a bunch of liars. 
Okay, well, we've all done that. And it doesn't have to be a bank. Uh, it could be a pencil in the third grade. Uh, that means that we're a thief, okay? The Bible says that God is so holy, even his name is holy. And that's why one of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Hey, folks, isn't it ironic how uh, now the blessed name of Jesus Christ, the Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which men might be saved, Jesus Christ, has now become a cuss word? Folks, the Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy, okay? And folks, let's be honest, we've used God's name in vain uh, before. The Bible also says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus takes the standard even higher. He says, listen, it's not just physical adultery. He says, surely I tell you that if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. God looks at the heart. One more out of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible says that the sin of hatred is akin to the sin of murder. You, in other words, in your heart, wish they were dead. You pulled the trigger, if you will, in your own heart. And the Bible says God sees that, and it's just as bad. He knows the mind. He knows the hearts, the thoughts, and the intents that we have. Folks, that's just five out of the Ten Commandments. How are you doing? Not very well. None of us can keep them. They're God's x-ray to show us that we're disqualified. And so when, not if, your time comes, because we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, you're going to have to stand before God. And you're going to have to uh, say who you really are. He already knows. Hey, God, let me into heaven. Uh, I'm, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer, adulterer, and a murderer. Folks, the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's the problem. Here's the good news. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him, what he did on the cross, on our behalf, that we will not perish, we will not go to hell, but he will give us the gift of eternal life. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of all of our sins. It's something that we don't earn. We, we, we can't earn. It's a gift, the Bible calls it. And a gift cannot be earned. He was taking the death penalty in our place. That's what the cross was of the day. And that if we would just ask Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins and believe that in our heart that God raised him from the grave, showing that his death is satisfactory to God to forgive us of all of our sins, no matter what we've done, the Bible says we shall be saved. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the grave, we will be saved. Let me give you a common analogy of what God's doing and what he did for us with Jesus dying on the cross on our behalf. Uh, in life, we know that people uh, can be sentenced for a crime uh, to where they're actually on death row. Uh, the courtroom scene has completely finished. The gavel has already sounded. Uh, they are going to jail and they're just awaiting their time before they go to the death penalty. Uh, as they're sitting there in the jail cell, uh, it, it's a proven fact they did what they did. Everybody knows it. They're just waiting for that time for their uh, number to come up, so to speak, and walk down that hall and be executed. Uh, there's nothing they could do to reverse their crime. No amount of good works in that jail cell can reverse what they've done. It's too late. It's over. But believe it or not, there's one way that people even today can get off a of death row. And that's if the one in authority, the governor, if he were to, out of mercy and kindness, nothing that the person did, because they don't earn it and they don't deserve it, and they can't earn it, if he would grant them what's called a pardon, 
out of the kindness of his heart, he has the authority to grant them a pardon and absolve them completely of their crimes uh, against the state. And did you know that there's actually been people that this has happened to, that the governor, out of mercy, has granted them a pardon as a gift, and they've gone down to the jail cell and handed that person, extended it through the bars, here, I'm granting you a pardon. If you would just receive it, you can go free right now. And did you know that there's actually been people who said, no, I don't want your pardon. And so what happened is of their own doing, even though they had a way out, they still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, can I tell you something? That's what God did for us with Jesus dying on the cross. He sent his son to take the death penalty in our place. He, God, has the authority to grant us through Jesus a complete pardon. And every day that you're still alive, God is extending to you spiritually this pardon. But a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it by faith. Won't you do that today? Won't you call upon the name of Jesus Christ? Ask him to forgive you of all of your sins, to trust in his work on the cross, to pardon us from all of our crimes, our sins against God. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But there's only one way to heaven. It's Jesus. There's only one way to get off a death row. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. Won't you do that right now? Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and, and Get a Life Ministries. And if there's anything that we can do for you, uh, please don't hesitate uh, to contact us. Uh, our number, our information will uh, come up here on the screen shortly. And uh, uh, if there's anything we could do for you, please don't hesitate to let us know. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. And uh, remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.